Amen. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of 1 John, chapter 5, where we continue our study. If you're new with us today and you didn't uh, bring a Bible of your own, we would love to give you one. You can just slip your hand up and the guys out back will uh, we'll get you one, bring it to you, and it's our gift to you. 1 John 5. We're going to look at a couple tricky verses, <laughs> a few more tricky verses in this, in this um, book. <clears throat> we'll look at those together today and, and uh, let the Lord teach us. 1 John 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So when you come to passages of Scripture that are a little bit obscure, a little difficult to understand, the principle that we learn together is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And that's what we're going to do together this morning. And so... Uh, I want you to, to consider these verses under a, a larger umbrella, which we would refer to as the Heavenly Father's love for us and his commitment to sanctify us, that is, his commitment to make us holy in Jesus Christ. Because our Heavenly Father loves us too much to let us remain in sin unchallenged. Instead, he disciplines us. He corrects us toward the goal of training us to walk in righteousness. And repeatedly, we've been learning throughout the book of 1 John that one mark of a true Christian is growth in righteousness. That is, that there will not be perfection, but there will be progression. There will be growth. We will be becoming more and more like Christ, less in love with our sin, more in love with our Savior. For example, 1 John 3, verse 6 says, No one who abides in him, that is in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John is confronting there not the fact that you and I struggle with sins in our lives and we're tempted and we're, we're seeking the Lord's help to overcome certain sins in our lives, but he is confronting the person who confesses to be a Christian and yet is living in sin. And what we need to understand as we come to these verses this morning is that God loves us too much to let us remain in our sin unchallenged. So when we sin, God chastens us. He disciplines us when we stray. But sometimes that... Did I do something wrong here? Okay, I didn't. Uh, sometimes the Heavenly Father's training process includes the involvement of fellow brothers and sisters who also love us too much to let us remain in sin. Unchallenged. And that really is John's point here in these verses this morning. The big idea is this Christian love should bear fruit in the ministry of restoration. 
In other words, as John has been repeatedly telling us about how to love one another, he's presenting to us another way to love one another. And that is that we would be willing to confront one another when needed in order that we may grow in righteousness, in order that we may be led to restoration. So Christian love should bear fruit in the ministry of restoration. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing, and that word committing is in the present tense, meaning that this is an ongoing habitual lifestyle. So if anyone sees his brother living in sin, he shall ask and God will give him life. So he shall get involved for their sake, is the point there. And notice it says, if anyone. It doesn't say, if the pastors see someone living in sin. If the elders see someone committing habitual lifestyles of sin. Or if, if the, the teachers or the counselors or whatever in the church see. No, if anyone. In other words, with knowledge comes responsibility. And as God shows us needs in each other's lives, we then have a responsibility to love one another. This one another ministry then, John says, requires two responses. Number one, we are to love sinning believers by praying for a repentant response to God's discipline. Notice John says, if you see your brother committing a sin, then you should pray. You should ask that God will give him life. You should ask that God will bring him to humble repentance to turn away from sin and follow righteousness. And as I said before, we're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so we really can't fully understand this portion of scripture without understanding our heavenly father's practice of loving discipline so turn uh, with me back to hebrews 12 so just a, a few books to your left in your bible to hebrews 12 and here we have a theology of the heavenly father's discipline and by the way, when I use the word discipline, and even when the uh, writer of Hebrews is using it here in this passage, it is not, it is not always discipline that, that is corrective of a specific sin. It's speaking of a God's training program, okay? What word do we get from the larger word discipline? Disciple comes from the same word. And so God has called us in Christ to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. And that means that the moment we got saved, we entered a training program to learn what it means to walk with Christ, to follow Christ. And we will not be complete with that, to, with that training program until we see him face to face, according to uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. When we shall see him, we shall be like him. So walk through this with me. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him, that is Jesus, who's referred to in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, considering Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Those two words together really are speaking of soul fatigue. Fatigue of the soul. 
fatigue of the spirit. Um, and, and so we're encouraged here, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who endured much hostility against himself. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Or have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So here, the the writer quotes from the Old Testament book of Proverbs to remind us that discipline is evidence of the love of God for us. Okay, it's not either God loves us or he disciplines, but he disciplines us because he loves us. He has made a commitment to us in Christ, and he, he, he has begun a good work in us, and he will continue that work until the day we see Christ. And so our responsibility is to not become bitter against God when he is training us, when he is dealing with the struggles that we have in our lives, the character deficiencies, the sharp edges that need to be sanded off, and so on. We should be open to the Lord changing us, helping us to grow in him. Why? Because for the Lord disciplines, verse 6, the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So God is committed to us as children in Christ to chastise us because he loves us. I mean, think of it, if it's, that, if it's true on the heavenly level, I mean, we certainly see how that's true on the earthly level as parents. Those of you who have kids, you discipline your children because you love them. In fact, the Bible says if you don't discipline them, that's evidence you don't really love them. You love yourself more than you love them. You love yourself more than you love the inconvenience of having to spend time correcting your children. God is never inconvenienced by us. He sees our sins. He sees our weaknesses. He sees our character deficiencies. And he says, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to train you that you might become more like Christ. It is for discipline, verse 7, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if a professing Christian is living in sin and God is not chastening them, that person ought to question the relationship they have with God because perhaps they are an illegitimate child of God, and that is they profess to know Christ, but they do not possess Christ because God says he's committed to making us like his son. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. See that? God chastens us, he corrects us, he trains us. That's the, the full picture here. So that we may share his holiness. So I don't know how long you've known the Lord. Maybe you don't know Jesus yet. Maybe you've known him a few months. Maybe you've known him for 40 years. But I ask you the question, are you as holy today as God wants you to be? 
Well, if you say yes, then you could probably get up and leave now because, you know, this isn't the place for you. Because a church is a hospital for sinners, not, not a country club for flawless saints. Okay? Um, obviously, all of us have a lot of room to grow, to become holy, to become like Jesus. But then he gets down to reality, verse 11. We know how this feels, right? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When you are in the midst of God's training, when God is chastising you, when God is using the circumstances of life to to reveal your character deficiencies, he is doing that because he loves you And it is unpleasant for that time, but it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. To who? To those who have been trained by it. You can talk about going to Planet Fitness every day, but if you never go, nothing will actually change. Right? We can talk about being trained by God, but if we don't submit to the actual training program that he has designed for us, then we're not going to become as Christ wants us to become. So please understand the, the beautiful truth of this passage that, that this is the Heavenly Father's commitment toward his sons, toward those who know him, toward those who are secure in their relationship in Christ. See, because the basis of our justification before God is the righteousness of Christ, not the righteousness of our own. Okay, Our sin um, can no longer affect our standing before God if we are trusting in Christ. We are washed by the blood of the Lamb and we are secure in Him. Uh, But that doesn't change the fact that when we sin, God cares about it. Because sin affects our relationship with Him. It disturbs the father-son, father-daughter relationship that we have with God through Christ. And so God has adopted us into his family, and, and as, as one who has done that, he takes the long-range view of our training, and he says, a little pain is worth the production of fruit. And praise the Lord, he never abandons us in the midst of that training process. His, his discipline, his correction is always good and is always administered with the goal of restoration. That's always his goal. Okay? God doesn't um, discipline us and then push us away from him. He draws us close and he corrects us. That's why early on my wife and I decided we would never spank our children and then send them to their room. Because discipline draws close. Instead, instead, we sent them to their room, and then we went and disciplined them. So that restoration of the relationship was always the goal. We will correct what needs to be corrected. We will deal with what needs to be dealt with, but we're not going to deal with it in anger and pushing you away from us. We wanted there to be security in the relationship. That's how God works with us. He draws near. He says, I love you too much to let you continue in these ways. I'm going to correct you. And then as we yield to that, he then trains us to become like Christ. 
So punishment pushes people away. Discipline restores, draws near. Well, God loves us, and he's working in our hearts and trying to do everything he can to accomplish that work of redemption, of sanctification in us. But there needs to be a willingness on our part to submit to the heavenly spankings. If we just get angry and run away from the heavenly spankings and become hardened in our hearts, we're not going to grow. We're not going to be trained the way that God wants us to be trained. So be encouraged. <laughs> you should be encouraged by this passage of Scripture that, that when we endure seasons of correction, they are painful, but they're only painful for the moment. Later, God brings beautiful fruit out of his discipline. The heart of God toward his sinning children is to restore them to new, closer levels of fellowship with him. So we should have that, that heart of submission and yielding to the Lord. Now, I went through all of that because of what John is telling us to do in relation to when we see one another sin. Because we ought to have the same heart toward one another that God has toward us when he corrects us, when he chastens us when he disciplines us, when he trains us, we should have that same heart toward one another. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Because as I said before, God intends the church to look more like a hospital for failing sinners than a country club for flawless saints. We are saved by the blood of Christ and forgiven, and yet we continue to wrestle with the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And therefore, we need to be committed to love one another and loving one another in such a way that means there will be times when we need to gently come alongside one another and say, hey, let me help you. Let me help you be sanctified in the Lord. Look at uh, Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brothers, beautiful first word that immediately puts it into the context of a spiritual family. Okay? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one... Test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So look at the expectation is very clearly stated. We are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The burden in this context is the weight of sin. And so uh, there, there's a brother who, or a sister who is caught in Sin, trapped, taken captive by sin. And, and our responsibility is to love them enough to come and help bear their burden of sin. 
okay? We who are spiritual, that is, we have the Holy Spirit. We who are are walking in the Spirit, we are walking in the way of the Lord, and God makes us aware of this need. We are to take the initiative to get involved in that brother's life or that sister's life. And yet we can't carry their sin burden for them, but we should carry it with them. Each one must carry his own load, it says in verse 5. I'm responsible for my sin, you're responsible for your sin, but there comes times in the Christian life where we need help from one another to help carry that weight of sin burden, to help overcome sin. So Paul's saying, you know, whatever help we give to one another it, it is not that we, res- we, we remove personal responsibility because each person must bear his own load. And yet, notice again the spirit of this whole ministry. It is done in keeping with the goal of restoration, always. Same as Hebrews 12. As God works in our lives, It's toward the goal of restoration. As God uses us to get involved in other people's lives, it's for the goal of restoration. That's always God's goal. So we can be reminded of wonderful truth like Romans 8, 2, which says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, we are set free, but we don't always walk in freedom, do we? Sometimes we put ourselves back in prison. Sometimes we're like Israel. You know, we want to go back to Egypt. And yet we are in Christ. We are free. So Paul's point here is that love grows from this heart of humility that, that understands that it's not that, that I am the super spiritual successful one and you are the one who is struggling and so I'm going to come and help you. What does it say? Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. We are fellow strugglers on the road of the Christian life. We are fellow strugglers walking on sanctification road and sometimes we trip and fall and sometimes we take a wrong exit and we need help getting back on track. And it's that, that spirit of brotherly love and restoration that God wants from us. You might say, well, that's not my business. It's not my business to get involved in another person's life. Well, if you are their brother or their sister in Christ, then there's a familial family obligation, Paul says. I'm not a courageous person. I can't do stuff like that. God's not calling for courage here. He's calling for love. So let's be careful we don't use a lack of courage as an excuse for what is actually a lack of love. Obviously, we do this in the context of a relationship. You don't meet someone one time and then begin confronting them. Please don't do that. We won't put you on our greeter ministry for sure. But here we're talking about relationships in the body of Christ. 
you know your brother, you know your sister, and hopefully you've, you've, you've gained some kind of relationship and credibility and respect, and, and you can love, because we all have blind spots. I have blind spots. You have blind spots. And we need help. Now, does this mean, then, that we should confront one another about every little offense or every little thing that annoys us? No, absolutely not. We are called to be long-suffering toward one another and to let love cover a multitude of sins. But if we get to the point where we observe a harmful pattern in a person's life, then John is saying we need to love one another enough to be committed to helping. The context of these other passages of Scripture, that means graciously speaking the truth in love. But John says it also means praying. So when and if the Holy Spirit presses on you to have this kind of restorative, gentle ministry with someone. Be sure to bathe it in prayer. Don't just dive in in an angry moment in the flesh because you'll do more damage than help. So John says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, the only sin that leads to death is a refusal to repent. And throughout this book, John's been saying, if that is the state of your heart, that you are so hard-hearted that you refuse to confess your sins to God, then that hard-heartedness is the one sin that will not be forgiven. Every other sin can be forgiven. Are we not thankful for that? Praise God. So, when you see a brother or sister in sin, making sinful choices, and this burdens your heart, what do you do? Do you gossip or do you pray? Do you harshly confront them in the spirit or do you, in gentleness and prayer, come alongside them and say, brother, I love you, sister, I love you, but can I, would you mind if I would just share with you some concern that I have? Wouldn't that be received so much better than sticking your finger in their face and saying, you know what, you drive me nuts. Let me tell you why. I'll start with the top ten ways. <laughs> you know, we, we sometimes get on each other's nerves, but love covers a multitude of sins, and we live in grace and truth. I tell you, that's one of the things that first attracted my wife and me to this church was the spirit of grace and acceptance that is here. And yet there's grace balanced with truth. We unapologetically teach God's word and are striving to live it with his help. question is, do we love one another this way? Well, this one another ministry requires another response. Number two, learn the relationship of sin to suffering and death. 
Notice it says, there is sin that leads to death. I'm thankful that John didn't say there is a sin that leads to death or there is the sin that leads to death because then we would spend our life trying to figure out what is that one thing and have I done it? He's taught us in the book that an unrepentant spirit, a hardness of heart that refuses to, to be honest with God is the one sin that will not be forgiven. So he says there is sin that leads to death. I, don't, I do not say that you should pray for that. So we shouldn't be praying for the death of someone who is living in sin. We should be praying for their repentance. We should be praying for their restoration. We, would be, we should be praying for a softening of their heart to understand the kindness of God that will lead them to repentance. Then he says in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So let's think through the distinctions that really are important for us to understand this morning concerning the relationship of sin to death. Number one, first distinction. Some death is the most severe discipline resulting from persistent, unrepentant sin. (coughs) Excuse me. some death, John says, some death is the most severe discipline resulting from persistent, unrepentant sin. Now, the Old Testament contains a number of examples of this where God suddenly takes a person's life, and it's quite shocking, and it's caused by their sin. For example, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who were, who were struck dead by God because they offered strange fire on the altar. Or uh, Korah, who was swallowed by an earthquake because he led a, re- a rebellion against Moses. Or Achan, who was stoned with his family. Or Uzzah, who touched the Ark of the Covenant and was struck dead. You have some of these examples of, <clears throat> of God acting very severely And so you might be tempted to say, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament doesn't treat people that way. Well, here we are in the book of 1 John, and we're being warned about sin that leads to death. So let's remember that all sin can be forgiven except one, which is the persistent refusal to repent. That is the sin leading to death. So I believe that in the context of everything we've looked at so far, that it's best to understand a sin leading to death as being the ultimate form of God's discipline upon one of his children. The immediate context is such that we're talking about believers. And John is reassuring us to be confident as we come to the Lord in prayer according to his will. And so he instructs us here to pray for a believer who is caught in a pattern of sin, that God would give him life that God would lead him to repentance. So we should pray for the Lord to convict 
and to lead us to repentance. Why? Because we want to experience the vibrancy of fellowship with him. But it is possible that a believer can become so hardened in sin that they will not respond to God's chastening and the ultimate discipline is for God to end their life and take them home to heaven prematurely for the sake of the testimony of his name and the harm they may be causing to others. This is a wake-up call. This is a very sober passage of Scripture. There are New Testament examples of God acting severely like this. For example, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, who deceived the apostles, struck dead within three hours of each other. Or in 1 Corinthians 5, you have a believer who is being disciplined by the church because of sins of incest. And that that believer, it is hoped, will repent of sin And yet the apostle says that if this unrepentant man does not turn to the Lord, then he is turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Then there's 1 Corinthians 11. Talks about abusing the Lord's Supper. I mean, the the Christians in the city of Corinth were keeping the hospitals and funeral homes in business. Paul says that, that there were believers who refused to repent of their sin, and they were sick or they were dead. So these are all examples that I'm bringing to your attention, not to strike fear into you in, in some kind of way, but just to help you to understand that God is so patient with us. He's so exceedingly long-suffering, and yet his patience has an end with us. He wants us to be walking in obedience. And so when this sin that leads to death occurs, it is the ultimate act of his chastening hand. That seems to me to be the best way to understand this sin that leads to death. Second distinction you need to understand is that all death results from original sin. All death comes from original sin. What is original sin? Adam and Eve sinning against God in the garden when God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. They ate of the tree. Death began. Romans 5.12 says that that sin and death spread to all of us, for in Adam we all sinned. Adam being the, the representative of the human race. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So, biblically speaking, all sin is mortal, okay? And, and, and all sin uh, leads eventually to death. So, in the rare event that we realize, that we may be tempted to realize that a person's death is a result of divine judgment upon them, I believe that we should really humbly resist casting judgment. If If that looks to be the case, it ought to be a sober wake-up call for us. But never can we be the ones to execute final judgment in some kind of way, conclusion in our lives. Only God knows. 
So all death, even our future death, if, if Jesus doesn't come back soon, will be the result of sin, original sin. We are all headed to the grave at some point. And yet, death is a defeated enemy. That was the whole point of that first song we sang, right? There's hope in Christ. Okay? So we ought not to be f- uh, gripped by a fear of death because Christ has defeated death. So some death is the most severe discipline of the Lord. All death results from original sin. Thirdly, though, please and especially understand this third distinction. Not all death is a divine chastisement for individual sin. And we could even say all, not all suffering, not all sickness. I have been teaching you this for eight years now, and I cannot stress it enough because of the way that some Christians have really gotten messed up in their theology of suffering and have caused great damage and hurt to other people who are suffering. Suffering and death are not necessarily connected to individual sin. Okay? All suffering and death is in our world because of original sin. We live in a fallen, broken world. But not all suffering and not all sickness and not all death even is directly connected to someone's individual choices. That was the faulty theology of Job's three so-called friends. The only thing those friends did right is they came and they sat with Job seven days of silence. When they opened their mouth, everything was a mess. Everything was a mess. When they opened their mouth, they revealed their faulty theology, which is that God only brings pain and suffering into people who are in sin. Simply not true. Jesus says we will suffer in this world. We live in a fallen world where everything is broken. Perhaps some of you are like, are like our family and we have disabilities in our family. Perhaps you have struggles physically, you have sickness, you have diseases. Perhaps even like me, you have unexplained seasons of depression that come and go, tied to nothing that you can understand, nothing that you can nail to the wall and say, that's it. There are physical, mental, emotional struggles that we experience in this life because we are fallen creatures and every part of our being has been impacted, affected by sin. But praise God, we have hope in Christ. He is the one who gives us all that we need to endure and so we can rejoice like Peter says that that when we are in the midst of trials we can rejoice because through that fire God is sanctifying us. He's making us more holy. I believe also that God uses suffering to nudge us to look to the future get our eyes off of this temporal life. As it says in Romans 8, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not 
worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Please understand this. The Bible nowhere, nowhere, nowhere teaches or promises that Christians will be exempt from pain, suffering, disease, or death. Nowhere. But what it does promise us is that whenever we are going through those periods of time in our life, we have a Heavenly Father who will care for us. He will use it to to make us more like Jesus. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have a Savior who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what we have that the world doesn't have. And we ought to praise God for that. So what is the purpose of today's scripture? Why did the Holy Spirit include such strange wordings in the Bible to force us into other parts of the word of God to understand God's love for us and also to compel us or to impel us to walk in obedience to him? to cause us to look to the spiritual well-being of others. If we see a brother or sister who's trapped in sin, it's our responsibility to lovingly come into their life and say, can I help you? That's not just the pastor's job. That's not just the elder's job. If you see it, it's your job. Do you love others? enough to graciously minister the word to their heart. And also, I believe this passage is a warning to us that all of us are susceptible to self-deception. So we need other people to speak truth into our lives. So not only do we need the courage of love to speak to one another, But we need humility to receive correction from others who love us enough. And I'm thankful for the people God has put into my life. I may not necessarily respond right away the way that I should, but I'm thankful in retrospect for people that God has put into my life to say, Paul, you know, maybe there's something you're just not seeing. (laughs) Can I help you? Can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? That's the kind of loving ministry we need to have to one another. So stay close to the Lord through ongoing confession, repentance, cleansing, and go back to this promise over and over and over in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can go directly to God and confess your sins because you have a high priest, the Lord Jesus, who will forgive. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture, even though it's a hard one to understand and perhaps even harder to apply. But, Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with a great sense of sensitivity and love uh, toward one another. Lord, that we will have this gracious 
ministry of prayer in each other's lives, that we would commit ourselves to praying for one another, that we may make progress in sanctification. And Lord, when you make us aware of brothers or sisters who need extra help walking down sanctification road or climbing a mountain or walking through a hard valley, give us the love that says you're not alone. I'm going to do this with you. Bless our church, Lord, as we obey your word. In Christ's name, amen.